Welcome to Emerald's podcast series on the future of work. Uh, my name is Neil Kennedy and I'm Senior Publisher for Business and Management at Emerald Publishing. Today we're exploring uh, developing training and supporting the current workforce for the future world of work. And we're joined by three leading experts in different areas of work and employment to discuss issues and potential new developments in this field. Anne M. Brewer is an educational advisor and consultant establishing a multiversity for the NUW Alliance in Australia. She's the former Dean of the University of Newcastle in Sydney and former Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Sydney. She's a specialist in the application of behavioural science in organisational settings and the author of numerous books, most recently Careers, Thinking, Strategising and Prototyping, which appeared in Emerald's Future Work series. Peter Holland is Professor of Human Resource Management and Director of the Executive MBA at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. He's the author and editor of books examining human resource management, including contemporary HRM issues in the 21st century, and an expert in the influence of technology on human resource practices. Brian Howison is a professor and the head of management in the Business School at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. He has broad experience of leadership theory and practice and public and third sector leadership and management. He is the author of Leadership, the current state of play and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Management Development. Thank you all for joining us today for this discussion. Brian, I was hoping I might be able to start with you and I'd like to get your thoughts around the concept of management development as it pertains to this issue. What is successful management development? What does that look like and what can it offer to businesses tackling challenges that may come up in the future world of work? I think it's such a very good question, this, because as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Management Development, I think about this at length. What do we mean by the development of management? And therefore, um, next year, we're going to have a special issue in this very regard about what exactly do we mean by management development? But there are two, I think, answers to this question. The first one is we've got to understand the challenges. And challenges to me, notwithstanding COVID, could be anything from the management challenges, sustainability. So in other words, helping people with the knowledge, the skills, the values and behaviours to understand sustainability development goals. I think we've got to be very interested in cross-cultural competencies, for example, understanding human rights, gender equality, global citizenship and how this impacts on the global workforce. I think we've really got to understand a lot more about ethical and social responsibility. In light of COVID, this whole idea, even before COVID, this whole idea of resilient and flexible approaches to learning. I think leadership is always on the agenda. Is what does it look like? What does it feel like for managers? And I think we're seeing lots more interdisciplinary working required so I think, first of all, we've got to do is understand the challenges and how we develop managers is to help them, in my view, understand a lot of these issues and help them start to understand or start the conversations with themselves in this regard. And it goes back to the editorial we put out in the, uh, the January edition of GMD was actually what do we mean by development? And I think understanding development is key here and why we want to develop managers. So for me, a lot of it is about individual development, 
in these areas and understanding how we enrich, how we adapt and how we help managers start the conversation with themselves to take on these challenges. It's a difficult question, actually, it is. to tackle next year. I, I appreciate it's a, a tough one to lead off on straight away, Brian, but I wanted to uh, take from what you were saying there and zero in on that question of development and linked to that is is training. And I wanted to ask you, Anne, you've written on, on careers and that sort of development and training piece, I think, is quite important thinking about the future of work, particularly around the sort of soft skills that employees might need. Are they going to be more important? And is it going to be more important to be sort of flexible and adaptable in a future world of work, in your view? Definitely, Neil. I think uh, if we talk about the soft skills, I think as we're now in industry 4.0, well into it, and it's really ramping up. And as Brian talked about, sort of interdisciplinary, I think what we're seeing in industry 4.0 is sort of a transdisciplinary, a transfusion of not just about disciplines at mixing, but it's also being across different disciplines. In other words, it's not, you know, if we're talking about engineering, you probably also need to know something about information or design or other areas. Um, And I think the soft skills are, and again, the sort of the blending of what we call hard skills and soft skills. I personally don't like the term soft skills because I think if I rattle off some of the soft skills like problem solving, critiquing, uh, empathy, ethical leadership, coordination, decision making, they're very tough and they're learned through experience. So it really does come back to how do we do management development today? How do we develop managers in the past, I think, decades ago, we sent people off to courses or we, they, we had enterprise-based training. And, and while that's still relevant, I think the learning today of developing is really through experience. So action learning is very important, Putting, giving people the opportunity to involve themselves in specific projects and teams, being able to receive constructively 360-degree feedback, job rotation, providing it has purpose um, and it's valued by the participants I think is very important and that's what I meant by sort of working on specific projects where they feel they're learning new things but they're also blending their they're having to get on with people they're having to coordinate they're having to um, network and build their relationship skills Uh, they're having to make decisions on the run and also take risks and I mean take risks about you know seizing opportunities because that's actually what's going to happen much more. We're going to have to be, COVID's taught us that we have to be very inventive uh, come what may. Absolutely. Thank you, Anne. Peter, I wonder if I could bring you in there and and to get your thoughts around um, the development and training side of things. Um, I'd be particularly interested to get your perspective when it comes to technology and its link to training and, and, and whether there are, opportunities there, potential issues there, what that means for companies in terms of their budgets and the thing that Anne touched on in terms of the sort of outsourcing of training versus in-house training. Uh, what, what are your thoughts around those? I'll try and also link it into what um, Brian and also Anne have said is that I think it's a really interesting point to first say, what is development? I was listening to that going, I've been unpacking that over the last three or four years after spending you know, over 20 years teaching postgraduates. And also as well, 
generally the age is getting younger and younger. So they come in to do, say, a master's degree with less experience. And mm-hmm. and that used to be the balance. You've got some experience, but no qualifications. Now you're seeing people with a lot of qualifications and no experience. And I've increasingly moved over to the action learning. And in that right. context, with both development and action learning, I've actually got involved with a with a company here who has a simulator. And I put my postgraduate students through their capstone course. We put them in a simulator for a day. And when I first did it, it really shocked me that I had students who had work experience. And when we put them in, and a good HR situation we used was a bullying situation. They actually were given a tour of the place. They then walked around a corner and found the bullying situation going on. The bully was very aggressive when they interviewed them as, as managers. The bullied person was just shot to pieces and they couldn't actually cope with the situation. If you gave them a book and they could tell you exactly what to do, but when they were actually faced with a situation like a critical incident like that, they didn't know how to deal with it. So I've increasingly got involved in this type of training, action learning, which is using actors and also uses 3D. So you can move through a building if you're looking at health and safety type issues and you can you can create situations. So I think it's fantastic if you can use technology now, because if you've got skills, you can test your skills. If you don't have skills, then it creates that skill inside of you that if you get in this bullying situation again, you know that, okay, within the simulator, in a safe environment, I know what worked and what didn't work. So I think this combination of action learning and technology is likely to be the cutting edge of training and and management development in the future. Thank you, Peter. And I think you um, would like to come back in on that. Yes, I'd really like to pick up on uh, a couple of uh, Peter's points, particularly the the last one where you've got the sort of the combination of technology and know-how, people's skills. And so just to use the term Industry 4.0, what we're seeing is a fusion of technology and applications, and Simulator is a great example of that. So what it's allowing, uh, and it really goes to the question that you're asking, Neil, about budgets and whether you outsource or insource, with AI and AR and these apps, we've actually got the opportunity to customise development, to personalise it and to make it more relevant to the specific areas that people might be working in. It's also highly accessible and it can be also delivered in just in time. And as Peter's example showed, it's learning in situ, it's learning in context, which is very valuable and impactful and is more likely to be remembered by the participants than before. Thank you. And Brian, have you also got a view around the the use of this technology and its impact on the development of workers? Just before I go there, I revisited, Neil, the uh, editorial in the Journal of Management Development in January when we tried to tease out that word development. Mm. And just to go back, just uh, development is a complex, contested, ambiguous term, rather. But what we're trying to say is develop moves beyond the provision of training towards a deeper or higher order level of learning, which implies that development is about personal and professional change. And just finally, the Cambridge Dictionary offers some help here, and it defines development as a process in which someone grows or changes and becomes more advanced. So I suppose what we're trying to do here is the context in which we all work in changes rapidly in this before. I think what we're all about here is trying to help people develop themselves as individuals and as professionals towards a deeper level of learning because little learning is continuous, be it as an individual or as an organisation. 
as a learning organisation. So how we do it, that could be, well, yes, technology. Why would we not use technology, really? So I think we must not lose sight of what we're trying to do when we develop managers. Absolutely. And maybe I could just ask another question and sort of zoom out to, to a sort of macro level and ask about, we're obviously we're talking to you and you're in you're in different countries in different regions of the world different political and governmental setups but in terms of courses uh, when it comes to professional development we're obviously looking at a pretty stark picture at the moment of the the back of the uh, the covid pandemic and what that might mean economically and I'd be keen to get your view in, in what can be done on a government level to help people from across society get access to those opportunities. I'd be interested to get your perspective, Anne, um, and Peter's as well, um, from the Australian context. Um, I think governments at, at a macro level could do better at perhaps connecting and linking the various policies. So we have, let, let's say, the education and training policy We've in Australia, as I'm sure you've got in the UK, you know, we have one for higher ed, one for vocational, one for school. So there's the, the linkage is just between the various education sectors for a start. But then there's the link of those policies, the education policies, to the employment and industry policies. And so, again, within the employment policies, you've got a number of sectors and different aspects, and each policy tends to be sort of targeted at something else. Yeah. And then you've got the industry policy and the and the national priorities of any organised uh, country, rather. So, again, what I'm talking about is the intra-linkages within the policy area, mm-hmm. but also the inter-linkages between the policies And often that's difficult because you've got different ministers and different portfolios carrying that. Now, the the reason for this is important, and COVID's pointed this out very well to us. Um, In Australia, we've discovered, we knew this was happening, that, uh, you know, our manufacturing now is about 6% of of our GDP compared to 30% in the past. Yes. And so if you're actually trying to encourage um, people to go into STEM, at the school level and at the higher ed level, then you've also got to be encouraging and uh, providing research uh, opportunities for building um, solutions in the, on, let's say, the manufacturing side or the science side so that we're actually building the industry base so that when we have the graduates, they've got something to graduate to. Um, and also, if we're talking about work integrated learning, which is part of the job-ready graduate package, then you need to have people being able to work to study and learn in context while they're studying. So I think that's I've sort of gone from a very macro to sort of coming down to the micro level. And then if we go down to the very micro level, then I think there have got to be some incentives uh, for individuals to learn. And in this day and age when we have young people who are often carrying uh, loan debt, um, you know, high housing costs, commuting costs, all of those things, running a family, childcare, and then we're asking them to retrain, reskill, cross-skill, upskill. Then there has to be some incentives, not just of time, but also perhaps financial. Peter, I'd love to get your perspective as well yeah, on what has been saying, and and maybe as well on that you mentioned about the, uh, the the sort of qualifications versus experience deficit. I think this is relevant here too. I think an important thing to pick up on Anne is that. Out of the OECD countries, Australia continually ranks bottom every year for university industry collaboration. 
And that is fundamental to what Anne was saying, is that if the universities and industry are like oil and water with each other, how do you, how does the government, government needs to try and facilitate some relationship in terms of how does, how does industry speak to union universities and how do universities speak to industry? And um, they both just seem to go along in parallel. Uh, universities are seen as a, a hothouse for creating uh, people for industry and industry doesn't see the relevance of university research in terms of what they do. So I think that's a really important issue we, we have to deal with in Australia because we're consistently at the bottom of the OECD for that. The, the, trying to get around it and like I'm going to a micro level is the there's a push within universities pre-COVID for um, micro-credentialing where you try and say to people, well, you know, if you want to get some skills from a university, but you don't want to do 16 units over four years, how do we get to a situation where they can do a unit here or a unit there and give them some sort of um, qualification or credentialism for it that universities see relevant and also that industry sees relevant? And again, you could be talking about management development or leadership. We'd like you to go and do a couple of units on management development and leadership and the university will give you some form of certificate and you have picked up the key skills that you want and you can go back to industry. So that might be one way of pulling industry and, and uh, universities closer together uh, in Australia, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And Brian, maybe we can come back to you on this now. Um, and I, I'm conscious that when I was talking about the UK context, but of course, you're in Scotland, where education matters are devolved. So there's obviously a, a duality going on there. Um, and I know that you have a background in um, as a as an academic of working with different professional bodies, whether that's uh, physicians or whether it's the, the football, um, uh, Scottish Football Association. And the, there's obviously professional development done through them. Is that something that can be spread out to other industries better, in your view? Well, this is an area that I'm very interested in, Neil, for a variety of reasons. I entered academia mid-career, and um, I think an awful lot about the relationship between academia and practice. And I think, to echo the views of Australia, I think we can do better in the UK. While my colleagues were talking there, the UK have published, or the UK has published rather, uh, talking about UK context and industrial strategy. Mm -hmm. um, it was published in 2019. And it tries to understand, and it talks about uh, the grand challenges for the UK are AI and the data economy, the future of mobility, clean growth in an ageing society. And it tries to locate the industrial strategy within there. Now, I think universities must play into that agenda. And I think as well about what is the purpose of universities, business schools, schools of management. Is it to educate undergraduates or postgraduates? What kind of bothers me is that a lot of the small and medium-sized enterprises in the UK post-COVID will probably not come to business schools. They'll still go back to the big four mm. for business advice. And there's something missing there. Why do SMEs in central Scotland feel that they get business advice from the big four consultancies and not business schools? And I think we've kind of lost our way perhaps in that regard that I'd say we're probably just under uh, educating undergraduates so a postgraduate. So I think we've got to think very hard about the purpose of a business school, the purpose of the school of management, what we're trying to do. I'm very interested in executive education. 
I'm very interested in CPD. I'm very interested in this idea of micro-teaching, credentialing. And I do, perhaps, I'm very interested in theory to practice. And therefore, I think the micro-credentialing is becoming very, very important. And I think that is one thing business schools can do. Um, and that's across the UK. In fact, that's globally, really. Um, business schools in Scotland are no real different from business schools in, say, uh, New South Wales. Yeah. I think we've got to, I think it would be very important that we re-examine our purpose and what we're trying to do and to think about our audiences at large and link in with things like the industrial, the industrial strategy and to actually link in how we develop the countries in which we, we, we are located. Absolutely. Thank you, Brent. Um, I wondered if we could sort of return to the workplace and um, and also the, the theme of technology. And, and I'd like to ask you, Peter, about some of the, the uses of technology in the future work, both currently and potentially looking off into the future for good and possibly for, for ill, um, depending on your view, in terms of the use of technology to monitor workers, the use of remote working and allowing people more flexibility, the growth in artificial intelligence and what that means for a HR department or an individual working from home or at their desk. What are the possibilities there and what are the kind of issues and concerns in your view? You obviously know because of the work I've done, I do look yeah. at the dark side of monitoring and surveillance. <laughs> I can give a good example, and it links into this, is that as I talked before, I talk, I, I work with this company, Master Builders in Australia, who do, a, do have a simulator. And obviously, we were shut down and they were shut down. Wicked problem, wicked solution. We actually set up a scenario where we ran the scenario on Zoom. So all the students were on Zoom and a couple of the actors were interstate. It worked a treat. So they've now conceptualised that training doesn't have to be about their South Melbourne-based headquarters and bringing people in. They've, through us, they've now learned, as Brian said, about learning organisations, that they can package this up and they can now have people who are on oil rigs off the Australian North Coast zooming in to training with the CEO or other people from the organisation. So these dis disparate organisations across this, this country, they've now realised they can bring them all together. So... We've helped in that sense. So university, industry got together, we Zoomed it, and it worked. So there's always learning opportunities. And the way we did the, the scenario, I won't go into too much, but it was because of pandemic, they had to sack someone. And when they realised they had to do it, you could see the visceral reaction. So mm -hmm. just because you're on Zoom, it didn't mean you didn't have a learning experience. Sure. The other the other side of this that concerns me, if you talk about AI generally, is that um, I've currently been asked to do a chapter on on work remote working. And I thought, I'm actually living the experience like everyone else. <laughs> I'm hearing stories of people being asked to download software onto their home computer so they can be monitored in terms of their, 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 their mouse movement, their typing, and also to take pictures of them so they're actually at the computer. Yeah. And if they're not seen to be doing anything for two minutes, then an email is generated via their boss to ask them what they're doing or they get logged off and they're not paid. So the issue of trust is interesting because we've all been forced to work remotely, not because our employers think that this is the future and the fourth, as, as Anne said, that we're in the fourth industrial revolution. We can do this. Zoom and Teams were all available pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. but no managers, mainly in Anglo-Australian countries in particular, had the trust mechanisms to say, I trust my workers to work at home. The government has forced you to push your workforce at home, but now, even despite that, people are still having these issues of 
being monitored and surveilled and monitored and surveilled in their own home where they often think this is my my literally my castle this is where i mm-hmm. i can be away from work and i can control work and now they find they can't control work so there's some interesting themes emerging out of the the, the remote shutdown and, and ai type issues Thank you, Peter. And I'd be interested to hear your view, particularly on that that trust piece and and maybe what it means longer term for careers. And and I was also just wanting to give an anecdote from an interview that I heard with Sir Kerry Cooper, who's a leading HR thinker of many years, who was talking about this idea of while there will be the opportunities for remote working, there could also be an inverse presenteeism where people sort of feel if they're being seen, whether it's being snapped by an AI system online or, or actually physically being in the office as much as possible might engender them more to a management strata. What do you feel around those issues? I think it's um, interesting because uh, in Australia, I think you've got the same in the UK. During COVID, we were asked, uh, the government set up a, an app and we were asked to download it onto our phones and, you know, there needed to be a sort of a particular take-up rate. Well, I think the take-up rate, the, the downloading has been less than was expected. So what I'm saying is that people, if they have the choice, they will make decisions around this. And if you ask yourself why uh, are they not um, responding, is because of this trust issue. But if we look at trust from another perspective, we now have multiple data points. From the time you put your pass at the, at the door of the office, to let yourself in is a data point. The camera probably picks you up in the lobby, that's a data point. The time you switch on your IT, uh, put your password in, it's another data point. You're using social media, media, it's a data point. So we've got all this massive information and we also have big data. Mm-hmm. And that, again, people are very concerned about it, not only because of trust and privacy breaches, but also hackers and all of that kind of thing. So there's, there's fear around this. But what I ask is, we have all this data coming in, all this information. What are we learning from it? Where's the analytics uh, occurring to understand how we might incentivise training and development and improve that for, for, for people? How does it improve workplace culture? So I think there's a lot of data lying around and a lot of information which is either lying fallow or being used for the purposes that Peter pointed out, whereas, in fact, if we were using it uh, in order to enhance or improve working life, then it might start to balance that distrust. People say, oh, actually, I can see a purpose for this. But when we just collect the data or ask to be downloaded the app and then the app is not being utilised in the way that, you know, we thought it would, then then distrust is actually magnified. On the remote learning, remote working rather, Freudian slip, because both are synonymous, I think, um, remote working, again, is now a negotiable term. In other words, we have terms in the employment contract and I think remote working will, in fact, be a, a negotiable term, and particularly post-COVID, because we can, we've seen it can work. We've seen the improvement in commuting times and also in pollution. And we've seen that now some people can hardly wait to get back to work, but increasingly people say, oh, gee, this is actually, this has worked for me. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, able to spend more time with the family and, and blend it and so on. So I think... It is something that we'll see people negotiating around as a condition of employment much more than we have in the past. 
Neil, can I can I move please? If that's Absolutely, okay. please do, Brian. I think what's been very interesting about COVID is as we see the shutdown of the industrial cities, as we see perhaps the flights uh, diminishing, that perhaps uh, nature has come to the fore somewhat. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we all, the skies are a bit clearer, bluer, the air's fresher. We we are rediscovering the idea of walking and. And nature is a good thing. And I think that might be a bit of a shock for us, an external shock that we don't want to go back to the way we were working. So I think that's quite interesting, the less traffic, less pollution, it comes back to sustainability. But I'm kind of interested in this whole idea of the future of work. And um, my view has been for a long time, I'm paid to do work as opposed to attend work. Mm-hmm. And when I have like and as you know, I've been like managed for a long time. I've always, I've never, I've been very uncomfortable with presenteeism or FaceTime because as long as we're output based and we've got to trust, we've got to trust, I trust you to do work. Now, there's various procedures we can use if you don't use work, but there's got, we've got to recognise that we're output based. If the work gets done, I don't like the whole micromanaging concept. And we've got a kind of HR system on my computer in office, and it makes me quite nervous because mm-hmm. I don't need to be monitored. Thank you very much. I regard myself as a kind of self-starter, self-empowered, and I will yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And probably I'll work too, but just truth be known. <laughs> so I think this whole trust thing in the future of work is a big issue. And as people, as Anna says, as we work more from home, we're empowered more. So therefore, we've got to examine the leadership, the management around the problems of micromanagement, which really concerns me. Yeah, absolutely. Peter, do you have uh, some comments following on from Brian there? Yeah, just just picking up, just again, enhancing what Brian was saying, is that when he said about, you know, we've learned a new way of working, there was a, a major investigation uh, on the telly in Australia this week, uh, Four Corners, which is an investigative program, talking about the future of airlines because Virgin collapsed in Australia, leaving Qantas by themselves. And the head of Qantas said, uh, Virgin has now been bought by another company, said Virgin is not my fear in terms of competition. It's Zoom and Teams because Mm -hmm. executives have now worked out they don't have to fly. I think Melbourne and Sydney is now, before COVID, was actually the busiest route in the world. Qantas will be very concerned that people are saying, well, hang on, I can just uh, Zoom, Brian, Anne, Neil, I can. I don't need to get on a plane. And also with work, it's a three-hour commute around trip if I go to work. So um, I, I found three extra hours in my day mm-hmm. that I don't have to commute for. So I think there will be fundamental change. And just on the top of this, Finland was ahead of the game. And on the 1st of January this year, Finland brought in a, a new workplace act where you could negotiate 50% of your time where you worked. And basically, I was saying it's not about, like Brian said, it's not about going to work, it's doing the work. Yeah. And that's a subtle but fundamental shift. Yeah. And Anne, have you got some comments around this this issue, which is a really big one? And what's something else I'd be interested to get perspectives on, and maybe you can speak to this, Anne, is if we are anticipating a change to remote working or even wider spread remote working, do we feel the need to do development of those workers is, is even more important? Does it become more difficult? And then how could we facilitate that better? Well, I think what uh, Brian and Peter have just said, what they've pointed out, and I'd like to underscore it, is that what COVID has taught us all remote working is it gives us back control. Yeah. So it gives the employee back some control 
And when we start to feel that we are in control or even, oh, my goodness, I can steer this myself, I can actually organise my own time, I can coordinate, providing I'm delivering. As Brian said, he's self-motivated, he will just do it. And I think once we give people back control, they start to take control. And I think this is important for what I call prototyping careers. It's really that we're in the driver's seat, we're the fundamental designers of our future work and how we actually navigate through that, whether that's to fulfil ourselves, you know, seeking a fulfilling life for ourselves or to impact others. And I think, as I said earlier, it changes the nature of the employment contract. In other words, both the employer and the employee has, uh, if you like, different controls, but if you actually look at the sort of the balance of or the ratio of controls, it's quite equal around the ratio. And, it is, and in fact, some of those controls are very similar. So for uh, careers, I think of the future, the biggest changes are flexibility, uncertainty, all of those things. Yes. But the same is true for the employer, the whole notion of flexibility, security, uncertainty. They're both navigating what those things mean. And when they come to actually think about am I going to work with you or for you or, or, or for me, those things are highly negotiable today. And I suppose as well, if, if we are anticipating a, a fracturing of uh, traditional working roles or traditional career views, are employers going to be as keen on development and training uh, their workforce if, if people might be working on a gig basis, uh, something along those lines? Do you have a view on uh, on that, Peter, or any follow-on comments from Anne there? Brian and Anna will know more about than I do, but it, most of the, the models we see about careers today are protein portfolio kaleidoscope, where it's all about people conceptualising the jobs they do into a yep. career. The words like authenticity come out and, and balance and challenge. Uh, but the irony, of course, for employers when we talk about, oh, well, we'll employ accept it, I've never come across a survey yet that has shown anything but workers improve their productivity and they're likely to stay in the company more if they have more control over how, when and where they work. Everything indicates it's a positive for both the company and the employee. So it's interesting in that respect. The point you pick up there about the dislocation with AI and stuff like that is interesting because work with artificial intelligence, we go to the gig economy. In some companies, it's actually you're being managed by an algorithm. And if you're an employee, how do you interact with an algorithm? How do you identify people's training needs? And there is a real interesting schism coming there. If we continually separate work and employment, when you were employed, you would expect some training or they would they would support you in that. But if yes. you just work for a certain amount of hours, then it's up to you. You're effectively a contractor. And this is where that, while it's been a great debate in the, the, the legal fraternity in, in both Australia and the UK, whether you're an employer or an employer, mm-hmm. that is so significant to training and development for your yep. career. And I think you'd like to come back in there. I'd like to come in at two levels, firstly the micro and then the macro level mm-hmm. and pick up on something that Brian said earlier. And that is that what Peter's just outlined is that there's going to be a greater demand for transparency, not just from employees directly, but from the community, but also more protections. And we've seen that with a whole host of things that have come out, just whether it's Black Lives Matter, um, the Me Too movement, the climate change movements, that people are wanting protections And so while there's greater transparency for the sorts of monitoring and how this is going to be used, there's got to be greater transparency about 
a whole range of other things, the protections and so on, that I think people will ask more questions about. But I think the other thing that um, Peter picks up on as well is what Brian said earlier, and that is we learn best in situ and whether that's learning while we're a young person at university for the first time or whether that's learning as a mid-career person. And this is where I think we have to see, and this is really what our multiversity is about at uh, the Greater Western Sydney, is really about placing learning right in the heart of industry where you can't see the boundaries where learning begins and where industry starts. It gives greater opportunity for learning and work-integrated learning, but also greater opportunity for industry and universities to talk to each other around research. If If we're actually there together, we're going to bump into each other, and I think we can start to have some of these discussions or debates around some of these issues more openly in that context, just as we are this evening. Thank you, Anne. Brian, I wanted to um, give the last word to you just on one question. You mentioned CPD, and, and, and I wonder if you have views on how employers or individual workers could be engendering a CPD mindset outside of those industries and cultures, whether it's law or the medical profession, that have had that baked in. What, what more could be done there in your view? I remember in 2005, the Royal College of Physicians of London, under the leadership of uh, Professor Professor Dean Carl Black, published a paper about doctors and society. It really started the doctors thinking about CPD because it was saying you can't just be a good clinician, your overall game's got to be good. So you've got to be a good leader, you've got to be a good manager, you've got to be a good clinician. Uh, And it reminded the medical profession They've got to be good all-rounders and they can't just be specialists. And I've never really forgotten that because I think we see that in academics. I'm never quite convinced by the academic who produces all the papers and that's all they do because we have citizenship, we've got a role in a university and I think senior academics are good all-rounders as well. For me, when I do leadership development, it's all about starting a conversation with themselves. I've been always a bit nervous about some suit charging £10,000 a day, giving me the latest Harvard Business Review model of leadership. I think what leadership is all about is about self-awareness, reflection, and starting a conversation. I think management and development has a lot to do about learning how to learn, because that will apply in a variety of contexts. So I think what we do when we develop managers is develop the critical thinking skills, their ability to learn throughout their working life and beyond And I think what we can do in CPD is actually what we are good in business schools and universities about developing these skills. So for me, I think how universities develop more with industry is to develop these skills in terms of leadership and management. And we put that to the root of everything we do in CPD. Now, there will always be a specific area we want to talk about, say, diversity in the workplace right now. And people might want to come along and understand a bit about CPD or to understand what we mean by gender equality. But actually, what we're trying to do in CPD and universities is help people to learn. And that's what we can bring to the party, in my view. Thank you, Brian. And thanks to all the panel, Brian Allison, Amber, Peter Holland. I appreciate all your contributions and thank you for listening. In the next podcast in this series on the future work, we're going to be looking at the opportunities and dangers offered by new technology across all economic sectors for the future world of work. 